let's say we were talking about memory safety, right? You take C and it's pretty obvious that the only way to have memory safe C code is the human programmer writes it correctly. And then you have Python, which assuming the bytecode interpreter is correct. And so you can do that using static analysis, but it requires what is essentially annotations using references and mutability and lifetimes from a human programmer to have those guarantees without the performance trade-off of Python. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH. Exclusively on MEV.io. And Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. And Fastlane Labs, the only MEV and intent-centric team that has a daily deodorant application rate of over 68%. GMGM GM, everyone, my name is Takashi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with a special guest, Alpharush from Trailer Bits. How's it going, friend? Hey, it's good to be here. It's good to have you on. We've chatted for a bit, but we haven't really spoken at all, so it's good to finally get on call. Now it's going to be in the history books. <laughs> for sure. I think for some context, just for the people that don't know who you are, who are you and, and what do you do? I got into programming probably about 2019, 2020, somewhere around there. And somehow heard about crypto and started getting really interested in it. And just kind of from the more like ideological or like the applications, stuff like that, I, I thought it was like interesting and realized that, you know, maybe there's a way I could actually like work in this space one day. And probably about summer 2021, I started getting like into solidity and went through the, you know, thing that you see common now where like people, They go through crypto zombies, they get on Twitter and start like asking questions or posting stuff that they figure out. And kind of through that experience, I got connected with Jocelyn at Trill Bits. I was trying to like fix a bug on Slither or something like that. And I ended up getting interviewed for the Trill Bits apprenticeship. And somehow I got in without very much experience, timed it just right. And so I've been there now at Trill Bits doing security reviews and working on different uh, security tools like Slither for about two years now. Yeah, cool. It's crazy how you got in so early as well. Kickstarting your career as a dev, especially getting in like 2020. I think I started the same time as well. It was either 2019, late 2019, early 2020. But I went straight into like the entrepreneurial route. I guess jobs never really worked for me. Always were like solo. It was kind of onboarding like going into, you know, this big kind of firm, fresh out. It kind of felt like a sink or swim thing. And I spent, yeah, the, the apprenticeship's about three months and stuff, but I wrote like Python scripts because it was like useful for some work that I was doing in a previous job. And I had done like a little bit of front end stuff like React and stuff like that. I just didn't have very much maturity or especially like a deep understanding of like how computers or like virtual machines work. So I feel like during the apprenticeship like I was learning very fundamental things like bytes and bits and stuff like that where to to someone who has like a computer science degree or they've been programming since the age of 12 like maybe those things were obvious but I was learning things from first principles and also like learning it on stuff that's like very high priority there's going to be millions and sometimes billions in these projects so it felt pretty high stakes to do it correctly. What was it kind of getting mentored by these people in the top of their field, especially in the crypto space, by Jocelyn and these senior security researchers you get pushed around? It kind of forges you into their kind of standard really early on. 
So what was that kind of process like for you? Yeah, I would say I was very fortunate because I, I think that's the hardest part about getting started in anything is that if you can quickly catch on and kind of in the age of the web where there's like, you know, YouTube lectures or articles that are like pretty, they have a lot of information density, kind of have to have someone to like help you prioritize like this is what you should be looking at right now because if you don't understand this thing when you get to you know the next thing you're, you're not going to be prepared for it and that's sort of like what I guess colleges are traditionally set up for but I, I never finished so Trobits kind of gave me the stability I needed during the apprenticeship and even following just till there's countless people especially like people who aren't even on Twitter or even on the blockchain team that you know they take time to answer just like maybe questions that seem simple and you know they would take for granted that they know that but they're you know kind enough to say like hey i can set a, set aside time to talk to this person and you know make sure that they yeah. really grasp this or help you solve a problem so whether that's like some deep theoretical thing about like static analysis or you're trying to run a github ci action i mean there's just people with wide ranges of skills and it like just getting to learn from people who are a lot further along and smarter than myself. I, I feel like that was a, a great privilege. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree. You got to find someone that's smarter than you, kind of stick around them, and then you kind of eventually get to the level just from just in nature because you're surrounded by that kind of environment. If you don't, then you're not going to really survive there, are you? And then it's just kind of like ever growing. You meet people that are at the same level once you get up there. You keep expanding, meet their network, keep expanding, eventually get to the top. And then once you're at the top, you start innovating inventing stuff which i think is the fun part <laughs> yeah yeah for sure it, it's definitely feels like a long road because you get to this point where you realize how much you don't understand despite and maybe i don't appreciate how much i've learned in the time but then you start becoming the person that people are asking these questions to and you kind of realize like okay maybe i have but yeah it, it never ends so yeah it's a never-ending journey of learning once you do get to that top spot there's even two paths you just go into a new field or you try and you know break ground in it which i mean that's what we're trying to do with the tooling as well right now especially uh trailer bits you just released medusa which is like the next version of kidna right which introduces some interesting things like parallel fuzzing I, i've been thinking about that quite recently as well but i haven't implemented it because i think it's kind of like a late stage thing basically you just introduce like new threads right and it's like highly efficient fuzzing well in terms of efficient optimization but you still need like the underlying kind of algorithms to make this fuzzer efficient so did you play any part in, in medusa at all or are you more on the static analysis kind of side yeah with medusa i think it actually even been started before i worked at troll bits and was kind of in this period where it just needed to get or it was in this place where it just needed to go the last mile before it could be shipped the vision has always been that it, it would probably replace echidna eventually i mean the people who were kind of kidnapped are, are also extremely talented. And so we kind of have this thing where, and also with the foundation of HEVM, there's some interesting things that are available to Echidna that Medusa is actually built using Go Ethereum as kind of like a library. So there's, I think, a trade-off of like what will be available for, you know, the same amount of engineering effort. But yeah, Medusa's primary, I think, improvement would be just like the i think the number one thing would be that we have a lot of engineers who would like love to contribute to tooling but haskell is kind of a niche language and it, it makes contributing you know like that the barrier to entry is like that much higher you don't 
only need to understand how a fuzzer does work and like maybe possible improvements that you could contribute. You also need to understand the language. So that was one thing by writing Medusa and Go, we we want it to be something that people can almost scalable. To. Yeah, yeah, just a lot of people know Go better. I mean, you basically integrate into the node as well. Then you're basically able to grab the actual state live or you know just use the RPC directly or even just integrate it into the node itself. But yeah, I definitely agree. You got to make it more enticing for contributors. I also wonder why like these large firms actually open source their tools instead of keeping them closed source for monetary gain. Maybe it's just to help, you know, the overall ecosystem, but I guess it's different perspectives, right? What do you think on that? Yeah, I wasn't around for it, but at one point, I think Trillbits was trying to do the same thing that we see a lot of people doing right now, which is they launch proprietary versions of tools. And sometimes they're even forking open source tools like Slither or something, and they're trying to monetize this through some sort of like software as a a subscription. And there's definitely, I think, a trade-off of if you can get a lot of revenue and subscribers and stuff, you have a, a lot more resources to build more advanced tooling and, you know, have dedicated engineering to it. So, you know, you see places like Satoro where they have, you know, an incredible number of very senior researchers, you know, like people who are pretty foundational to like, you know, the field of like SMT solving and they just have them on staff, like working on that sort of stuff for them. So, you know, there is some value to it. I definitely just think that at Trailbits, we realized like that that was not sustainable or even like didn't align with our values and just that like we think that security research is it's like a community effort right like and this is not just like in the the crypto or like web3 security world it's like you know as attacks and vulnerabilities get made public right everyone is trying to add that to their um you know kind of knowledge base like we know this is something that can occur how can we basically never have to find this bug in the wild again like can we catch it during the development life cycle and that's where you introduce testing and stuff like static analysis and just trying to eliminate those bugs and so i think that it kind of became part of the mission just that our tools always need to be improved but just that we would make them open to people so that anyone can you shouldn't have to pay whatever it is per month to you know catch a re-entrancy bug right where it's like some fundamental thing where and so yeah I definitely think long term, like just that, I mean, so there's fairly mature and so are some of our other tools. And of course, as I said, that, you know, you software doesn't just, you can't just let it sit there. It also needs to be constantly maintained and improved. And um, that's something we're, we're well aware of and always trying to figure out what's the, like the next priority, right? Like where, where is tooling going? And I think that at least my like personal conviction is that we will always be put it, give, giving proprietary people a run for their money. Yeah, definitely. It's like a big disincentive to kind of make your own tool by yourself or in your own company because then you're just competing with all these open source you know, tools. And that's like a, a big backlash I got. Well, not really massive, but it was just the only thing really mentioned when I you know, talked about it to, to some friends. They're like, oh, yeah, you're basically competing with all these firms, but... I think, and at the end of the day, I think it comes down to what your your goals are. Like for me, it's financial, but 
I think once I reach a financial stage that I'm comfortable with, then it like open source is fine. I'd be glad to work on that. But yeah, I, I definitely think for like firms that wouldn't necessarily care about money too much because it's kind of improving the space overall and that is kind of a po- positive feedback loop in terms of them, you know, more adoption if the f- space has better reputation, more people want audits or I know trailer bits is uh, it's more than just audits. It's actually just improving your code, um, giving feedback on that. So it's just, yeah, a massive feedback loop for them. But I think with the small fish, like open source is great if you want reputation um, to get people on board, I guess. Closed source is good if it's really like next level stuff. But I, yeah, it all comes down to goals, I think. No, I don't think there's anything wrong, especially like as an independent researcher to re- rely on like... I mean, if you're, you know, trying to make your rent or pay for your food every month, like you can't really afford to give up like how your source of how you're making money. But I I definitely, I mean, that's kind of where you get the whole, and I still think it's an unsolved problem in academia, right? People get grants and even then some of them still don't open source their code, but there is a trend of people like trying to open source even the tools that they build with grant funding and making it actually possible to, you know, like run benchmarks and stuff. And verify that these investments that that ends up being the government or some other private interest even with the the advent of like public goods funding you know like from from optimism and stuff i I think there's still always going to be room just for funding and grants to to develop these kind of tools the way it basically works is that in our spare cycles between security reviews you know whoever wants to if you're interested in fuzzing static analysis or and a lot of it's ended up being not solidity recently like we just released a tool for cairo so the people on our team who are their goal is to be specialist in cairo have been building static analysis tools for that that's i think that's the long term like any language or any basically whatever the frontier of like blockchain or just security broadly like that's where trail bits wants to be we want to be pushing the state of the art or at least applying the state of the art to these new domains yeah the ones with zk fuzzing is going to be quite interesting especially exploit generation because you have private transactions and in order to do fuzzing you need like to basically fork or have execution engine locally or something to run it on so i guess an execution engine on zk is so much more advanced than basic evm one so i'm pretty i'm pretty keen to see how this all plays out yeah there's a couple tools I don't quite understand the intricacy, but for some reason, fuzzing is particularly difficult for circuits. It has something to do with like the field. Basically, generating valid inputs is harder because it's based off of these different fields. And we have started working on stuff like our cryptography team is like incredible. I I don't know how many people realize it, but I mean, there's a team of like 10 people who they're even putting out like vulnerabilities of these academic papers there was one called like frozen heart about some there's a lot of stuff going on besides solidity and evm at, at, at trillabits to apply static analysis and formal even like some of the zk tools have delved into the range of formal verification like using smt solvers to make sure that your zk circuits are non-deterministic and stuff like that yeah i'm really keen to see kind of how black hats act in this kind of state as well it's always interesting to see both sides of like good and bad, especially when there's, you know, private transactions and even just like ZK bridges as well. That's going to be a massive field, which I think is highly competitive right now. People are trying to get a head start, but 
I mean, in such early days, there's no standards. And when there's no standard, you've even, even built your own fuzzer, and, like live. It was like a four-hour stream, wasn't it? Something around that. And you built like a basic fuzzer in Python. What kind of made you do that? Yeah, well, I guess like being sort of self-taught, I've kind of done this thing where I try to like look at a tool and understand how it works or like read a paper. And there's kind of this unfortunate thing where it's sort of changed even since I joined Trail Bits that there's a little bit more, there's a lot of tools that I've found that are like open source to to understand like what these papers describe and stuff like that. But, um, and it, it's something I sort of stole from like George Hotz, who is notorious for going on YouTube and he'll like read an AI paper and like try to implement it. And so rather than like waste time trying to understand something and like never really accomplish anything, I was like, okay, I'll just take this model of like learn by doing and kind of see, see if I can uh, get this to work. And at that point I had the motivation would be like, I had been exposed to primarily working on Slither, which is a static analysis tool. And I hadn't really worked on, on fuzzing a ton and was I'm interested in both, but as a constraint of time, I can only really contribute to fuzzing to give feedback on, you know, is it working well? Does Is there something we could change to make it easier to use? and Or is there something that could increase the efficiency of finding bugs or something? So a lot of that gets into more of just design or like high level ideas. And so to understand the, the, the process concretely and not just like, you know, conceptually, I, I wanted to, um you know, go through the process of you know, here's uh, how you randomly generate transactions and figure out what you should be calling. And like, can you break an invariant that requires, it, it's not just calling one function, right? You need to call multiple functions across transactions. I can't remember. I don't think I ever got to the part of like actually having coverage guided. Yeah. That was something that like remained, remained to do, but um, yeah, it was, it was a good exercise. And I think this, the technique of like kind of taking a toy tool and trying something out is extremely valuable because, you know, when you want to make a modification to something that's tens or hundreds of thousands of lines, like fuzzing tool, a static analysis tool, a compiler, if you don't have end to end, or at least like very good understanding of the code base or the component that you're modifying, you'll spend more time trying to, to understand it than if you were to like take a toy language or a toy tool. And try mm-hmm. to like experiment kind of, with some yeah, idea. Yeah. Trial and error. Yeah, I agree. I've done it from experience of the big code base and then realizing you need to upgrade and then rebuilding it. <laughs> it's not fun, but I think that's like an expensive lesson as well in terms of time. But how did you really build it as well? Was it more of, all right, let me just build it simultaneously while thinking or did you plan it out or read some papers beforehand or just, yeah, just go for it? Yeah, I had read some fuzzing papers, but most of the design, I guess, was just based off of like asking questions to Gustavo, who works on Echidna, like, how does this work? Over time, kind of having a rough idea of, okay, this is how a a smart contract fuzzer maybe should work and trying to actually convert that to code. And I had worked with like Slither and Critic Compile, which is any hard hat foundry project you can it's kind of like an abstraction layer to get all the source code and the byte code from the Solidity compiler and deploy it to a blockchain. So I had some familiarity there, but I had to, the biggest thing actually, which is kind of crazy in retrospect, when you look at tooling today, I was trying to use, I think, Geth locally, and I could not for the life of me figure out how to like start a local 
blockchain. So I ended up using like Ganache, which is like terribly slow. Um, and so if I were to do today, you know, you have something like REVM, the Rust implementation of the EVM, where like, I think there's even Python bindings to it and you could very easily spin up something like much better than what I was able to do, but it didn't exist at the time. So I was yeah, kind of left to what I had available to me. I agree. Just having an idea, such a plan of what to build and then following it step-by-step, trying to modulize as much as possible seems to be the best approach from my experience. At least I've kind of done everything where building simultaneously while thinking of what needs to be next. But when building a larger system like fuzzer and you know dynamic dynamic analysis and static analysis combined with like symbolic execution it's usually best to research beforehand and design the architecture on paper and then start implementing because then maybe you go down the line and you realize once you finish building it and you print out the output you think of an edge case and it's not actually scalable then you have to rebuild it especially since it's such a foundational kind of thing like these tools is, you know, the required data that needs to be processed and then build a feedback loop for this process to make it more efficient, direct it in some way. Yeah. Uh, no, no yes. I definitely think if you haven't built any of these tools before, like I wouldn't expect the first one to be like, maybe if you've like really read through a lot of the source code of other ones and you just like have some great insight that the original authors didn't, maybe it's possible, but I would expect it to be more like a, a learning exercise and you would kind of realize maybe this doesn't work because both for using these tools and building them, there's, I, I think the order is like, in, in terms of difficulty of engineering and like using the tools, like f- fuzzing is probably the easiest. You don't have to have coverage guided fuzzing. You can do random fuzzing. And Foundry's kind of shown that, right? Like you have sometimes a really fast what they call, and I don't mean this derogatory, just like in terms of this is what people call it. They call it like a dumb fuzzer. Like it's just random and doesn't have any sort of tricks up its sleeve to cover code that it might not be able to probabilistically. But when you, you know, you go build a static analysis tool, you can do stuff like just, you know, sort of visiting nodes in the abstract syntax tree or basically grepping the source code, but you're, you're going to have a hard time implementing analyses that are out of the box available and like a more mature tool like slither where you know if you want to find out does the user's input to a function like does it reach some or influence some other variable and like affects the amount that you get out of a token transfer or something that's going to be more difficult without investing time and then you know you have tools like formal verification where kind of a broad umbrella of terms but generally it means like you're representing a program as ultimately like some sort of logical constraint or like SMT query to a, a solver. And you're asking it, you know, like for this input, can you find a solution? And you could spend all you know, the rest of your life probably working on those kind of tools because I, th- I think there's a lot of fundamental research to be done there still. And there's also just like a lot of tricks to get the value of it without the sacrifice and speed for like, for instance, you mentioned like hybrid fuzzing where you combine fuzzing and symbolic execution. And and that's one of those tricks where it's like, if you are kind of studied up on something, you might try to go build a tool that is completely symbolic. And you'll realize for some really complex project that it's just going to either blow up the memory or take like hours to run. And that might not, not be feasible for if you have a week to do an audit and it takes a week to run, like you're not going to get the return on investment that you could just using a fuzzer 
or a tool that combines them, for instance? Yeah, I think for any kind of team doing a manual audit, they should build some sort of tool where you can direct the fuzzer because you have more context in the code base. And then you can kind of like compile it down into bytecode and then feed in these user-provided values so that make it a bit more smarter. Whereas if you're just doing like gray box, throw on the bytecode, all right, let's find a vulnerability. That's like one of the most complex tasks I've ever dealt with. There's so many moving parts, so many things to account for. And you also need to have like a very good understanding of just bytecode in general at at that point. What are the patterns you see in vulnerabilities? And then kind of putting that in a heuristic way is quite difficult. And some people don't even follow patterns as well. So like a pattern, for example, is seeing if there's an ERC-20, you know, transfer or transfer from, and then what kind of relates to this, what's being used, what's a dependency. But then maybe your project doesn't even use, you know, these standards. And then how do you generalize that to the point where you know what the storage variable is? Is it relating to money? Is it like a shares kind of thing? Something like that. But it kind of explodes with complexity the more you dive into it with generalization. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what you say is, I think explains why Trollbits has focused more on fuzzing than formal verification because you, you there. I think there's a ton of room for innovation and automation and for automated vulnerability finding. But when you have such a variability between projects of like, at some point it requires like, you have to have an idea of like what the code is doing and like what it should be doing and what behavior is undesirable. And I guess the way to put it would be like, you have an Oracle problem, right? Like you need to be able to ask, like, is this a bug? You can do that with stack analysis. You can have a heuristic, like this is probably a bug based off of, you know, we're seeing this function call and it just basically it's based off like the syntax and you're trying to like based off the meaning of like what that probably does. um, You know, you say like that's, likely a bug or with a fuzzing tool right you have like a a human who's riding a harness and like you said you can kind of direct it to where you like you know you're not maybe you're not interested in fuzzing like this really peripheral part of the system where like it won't really affect anything like you might find a bug that has really low impact if you were to fuzz it but you're fuzzing an amm and you can target the swap function and somehow get more tokens out than you put in when you have a human who can identify like this is what's important about the, the system this is what would be really bad to happen and we can express that and you can write what we call like properties or invariants of the system which are things that should always hold true that we want this behavior to be consistent to where we can rely on this property we know that if you were to deposit and provide liquidity to this mm pool like you're not gonna wake up tomorrow and all your funds are gone i think the point where we're at expressing those properties and solidities is something that solidity is something that's available to developers. You know, it's the language they're writing this code in and they don't have to learn some specification language, which would be the next step of like when you're asking yourself, what is a bug and you're using formal verification, you, you typically have to write some sort of specification and it might be a domain specific language, which you need to learn and you have to be able to express, um, you know, what you call like axioms, like uh, like for all inputs to this contract, this property holds true, which is not something that is available out of the box and solidity maybe could be eventually, but we're not there now. So I think it still makes sense to primarily rely on lighter weight techniques and only reach for formal verification when you have really mature code that you have a 
good understanding of, and you have the time, expertise, and resources to invest in that. And then again, I still think back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, having a dependency on proprietary tools is not something that I'm personally comfortable with. That decision is something that has to be made for everyone. And I think that the ability to fork something on GitHub and clone it and run it locally, I think it's like really powerful. It's unfortunate that there's not like more advanced, like really easy to use formal verification things, but that's kind of like, if you ask any person who's like really interested in that, like that's what they're all focused on and like trying to solve. And it's hieroglyphics to anyone who's not in that field still. And um, yeah, it's actually not a lot of resources on it. You have the fuzzing book, for example, which is a terrific resource. But I mean, if you go on like Udemy or any of these course websites, there's no courses on building a fuzzer from scratch, talking about these topics in depth. It's more about very specific things like using a fuzzer to, I don't know, develop some software or something like that. But yeah, I've noticed there's not really a lot of content on it at all. It's more about very surface level things. But I do agree with teams needing to write invariants. But it, the question is, how fast can you write them, right? And if they're using a you know, domain-specific language, then it's going to take... I mean, it's just not a good trade-off unless it's a very good tool. I think Sotora does domain-specific language thing with a specification, and they actually just get hired to write it for teams. But if there was some kind of streamlined tool, I think this is a great idea if someone wants to do it, but you know, make something where you can kind of, if I were to do it, I would do this. I would have, you know, a really good fuzzer and then I'll have a user input thing of, okay, what storage slot should be what at a certain time. The problem with that is Solidity compiles into a whole bunch of opcodes that's just optimize it all. Like if you run a basic like ERC20 contract, you'll see there's a lot of filler code or just inefficiencies which is fine but it's just like a compiler problem at that point but yeah it gets a bit complex to that degree but if you have some kind of tool that can identify you know like the storage slot in solidity is represented here in the op in the bytecode and you can say this shouldn't pass you know this value and then push it back into a fuzzer and then you can kind of direct it like that which i think foundry does quite well actually i think foundry is kind of like the standard now that's not even like a smart fuzzer. It's more of uh, even variant than random random inputs. So if someone built like a tool of a smart fuzzer, you know, with change analysis, bound analysis, all this kind of stuff, but also having the, you know, having the project, then being able to just like write a line of invariance and push that in, where should it be? Writing invariance within the code itself. Because the thing with Foundry that I think is a big flaw is you're only allowed to write invariants at the end of a call, but you're not actually capable of writing invariants within a call. So you have to actually modulize the function to be able to do that, which obviously auditing team is not going to do, right? So if someone de developed a tool where you can write invariants within a function itself, then that would be massive game changer, I think, for auditors in general. Yeah, I think the experience of like, there's the thing they call like the handler pattern, which I think is kind of a workaround for not persisting state or something. But I mean, Echidna and Medusa, Echidna has been around for, I don't know, five years and it's always been based in Solidity. So, I mean, being able to write invariants in Solidity is not anything new. I think the, I would be all in favor of having some like unified tool chain. It's just a question of like, 
who's gonna fund it you look at even with stuff like the the rust foundation and you know you have the compiler and cargo and crates.io and this stuff like they, they there's still like all this stuff which we kind of see in the DeFi governance stuff where you know anytime you have humans involved in making decisions or humans working on something right you have two questions to answer which is like how are we paying these people and like can we all get along and like reach consensus on something and so for trail bits like working on our tools having the ability to freely modify them like when we determine that something is going to be the best way forward and i think there's definitely a lot of improvement to be made on on user experience and stuff but the whole thing i I do think that it's a little there's all these things that you mentioned like bound analysis and stuff and there there's like theoretical benefits or i think the idea was to use it and foundry as basically to help it get past like certain like you put a constant in your code and you could detect that the value needs to be equal to that constant to pass this basically to reach this branch right well that's something that's existed for you know since slither and echidna have existed like we we do those same things and you don't have to wait um or do anything complicated to use these things it's just a matter of like when any advanced functionality for people who aren't regularly using tools is kind of opaque and that's a, a matter of like improving education and improving the the usage of the tools which is like one of my highest and i'm always looking for feedback and trying to help people very open to and like well aware that security tools are some of the hardest things to use for developers and if we want people to use them effectively like you have to make it as easy as possible and like straightforward to do the other thing you say about using stuff in line to uh kind of indicate like you know this variable is important or this variable like adding meaning to the code that a tool could use which is something that i think has kind of been explored with like static analysis traditionally and, and something we've used a little bit in slither like for instance like if you know that an address is trusted then like you can annotate with a comment and like slither won't warn for reentrancy because you trust that contract not to call back and like cause some sort of unwanted action that you, you didn't anticipate or if you have like a variable that should only be written to by specific authorized users you have an only owner modifier for instance like you can annotate and say any rights to the state variable should be preceded by a check that the address is authorized so th- there is like work towards that and i think again it's a matter of surfacing that to to users and like coming up with like a good way to there's probably a good way to like when you first like as an auditor like when you first look at a code base like there's probably some way to very quickly like annotate source code or like answer questions about the code where you could kind of ramp up and make your tools more effective i know i'm looking at something like MakerDAO, where it's a stable coin system, I should probably make sure there's always more collateral than debt or something. And like, you could very quickly like try to identify the state variables like relevant to that and then make it easy for your fuzzer before you've even fully manually reviewed the code, you're already starting to fuzz on like important properties of the system like that. But getting to a point where it's fully automated, I still think that you're always gonna need someone in the loop you can always reduce the amount of reliance on humans, but sometimes it's better to 
ask a human than to spend years of research trying to solve a way to like slightly incrementally solve something automatically where you don't get as much of benefit? I think it depends on the ultimate goal as well. I, I think fully automation, like fully automated tool is definitely feasible for a certain goal. For example, if your goal is to find every critical bug in every single state of a contract, that's quite difficult. And it probably, I mean, depends on what you really are interested in at that point. But I think if you can kind of generate some global invariant, for example, can I take money away from this? That's usually the main one that black hats use. And that's what you want to deter, you know, deter when you're live. But if you're trying to find like mediums, for example, like something that could happen at a certain context, but it's highly unlikely, then maybe they're not really interested in it. And I think that automating that is quite hard as well. So I think if you have some global invariant, you can try and that applies to kind of everything, which in this case, smart contracts, it's always, can you take money? Then you can actually fully automate it, but it may take a, a while depending on your skill and you know experience, whatnot, which I think is like a contrary opinion, but I mean, you don't believe it until it happens, right? It's kind of the same with any innovation. Like, oh, humans can fly? Oh, now it's an airplane. Okay, that's an innovation. <laughs> yeah, I think in due time, like everything can really come into play. It just depends on what's happening. But I think for specific things, if you have time constraints, it's very, you know, very hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, for instance, you can pick a bug class and, you know, develop a way to, to find it automatically. It's just a question of like, can you do that? repeatedly for every single bug that you ever want to find or are you going to kind of do this mixture of like we'll use static analysis and fuzzing for what they're good for and then fill in the gap with human security researchers which is kind of the model of trail of bits and i think at the end of the day you you always have this trade-off like for instance you look at languages like let's say we're talking about memory safety right you, you take c and it's like pretty obvious that the only way to have memory safe C code is like that the human programmer writes it correctly. And then you have Python, which like assuming the bytecode interpreter, like all that stuff is like correct, right? Like it's some, you're not going to have memory safety issues because you're not manually managing memory. And then, but the trade-off there is like now you're really slow. And so you kind of have this happy medium of Rust where using, again, static analysis, they can do this thing called like a, borrow checking where you can look like am I accessing memory or that I don't own or like for instance are you writing to an area of memory that you don't have uh, exclusive ownership of and so you can do that using static analysis but it requires which what is essentially annotations using references and mutability and lifetimes from a human programmer to have those guarantees without the performance trade-off of python but I don't know that there will ever be, I think things could always get better. Like, will there be a, a programming language that has memory safety and you can, you can write it like Python, but it's as fast as Rust. Like, does that world exist? Probably. It's just a matter of a lot of work and research, but I don't know that you get any of these things like for free or just like, there's no like utopic world where we never write bugs again. I, I think we're always just going to be. Yeah, I agree. Like even with new tech and new innovations that come out, there are always going to be new bugs and new classes of them, new kind of vulnerabilities. Like with AI coming into play, there's going to be vulnerabilities with AI. For example, you can like prompt it in a certain way to get 
don't know, maybe some private information. Uh, it doesn't really adhere to restricting that kind of prompts. You can get around it. It just depends on like how you ask it and all that stuff. So even you, you see like with new innovations like AI, you have deep fakes, which it can be great or they can be bad. And then now you have problems to solve of how to detect a deep fake in case it's used in, in court or something or anything like that. So I think it's always going to be security is just, you know, permanently there. <laughs> it's just you got to keep up with innovation and just really stay on top of it and keep trying to improve. Because I think manual stuff is not scalable at all. The only way you can scale is just hiring more people. But at that point, you just need a shit ton of money <laughs> and, and people with experience. So I, I think eventually you're just going to have to automate as much as possible to maybe help the manual side of it or maybe yeah it's interesting I, i'm also very interested in like invariant generation i know it's like incredibly hard but i think ai could be used to kind of understand the code base and generate invariants and you can kind of choose oh yes this is true or no this is not true there's obviously a bug there then which i think can work if you think about it yeah it's I, i'm not too deep into it but I think that's kind of the problem you, you face with these verification tools is that, and again, like looking at a tool like Sertora, right, where they're doing, they rely on at some point the, the bottleneck of SMT solving. They can use static analysis, which can be used for invariant generation, where it's like the example they give in their documentation, something like the memory region or, I don't know, basically like you can you can have using like techniques like static analysis, you can decide that this property of the program is true, and then you can simplify or feed that information into this logical constraint that you've made, and it makes it easier to solve. There probably is a point at which you could do the same thing instead of using something like static analysis to find invariants, you could use AI. I think the problem is that, for instance, like a high-level property, I always get my money back out of the system. For something simple like that, maybe the AI gets it right, but we don't have any guarantees about correctness and you would probably end up needing a human to review it and facing this issue of, is it subtly wrong? It's kind of like reading code you didn't write. Does it do the thing that the programmer intended? Maybe, but unless you know what the programmer intended. And then for like lower level stuff, like reasoning about things in like byte code or machine code where you're trying to like speed up something, like could you use it? I, I think you would probably end up in a place where you're trading off correctness for speed because with static analysis you have like sort of uh you know if you're doing what they call like over approximation which basically just says that you would always favor correctness over missing a bug then you have like basically mathematical guarantees that this bug or invariant is correct or the bug is not there or the invariant that you've generated is correct but with ai Again, you're sort of flipping a coin, I, I think, at the end of the day, and you would need a human in the loop to check that. But it probably could be used at some level to speed things up. Yeah, I don't know if anything actually tells you what is happening. Well, I guess the code tells you, but you don't know the bounds of the code or what's required. So maybe a tool where you, know, you can have a static analyzer right, that tells you what is actually possible, so it generates kind of ranges and what can be called before it, what can be called after it, even that might be useful just to create that kind of 
documentation in a sense it generates documentation in like code format and then the developer can go read that and say wait no this is not actually meant to happen i missed this before i think that would be quite interesting actually i don't know if that exists yeah the i think using the stuff for code understanding is probably like a little bit more like imminent there's a company called SourceGraph. they have a tool called um cody which you can like access in a github like view and you can open a file in the browser and ask questions about and, and i've tried that some and i think it's similar to i mean like when you're trying to understand a code base right or like how to use an api like you frequently use like the test or something and so rather than having to do this like really manual process of clicking go to definition go to references you could rely on the ai and like it might have inferred these relationships that you would manually discover and um, ask a question and it might very quickly like give you something that's like workable maybe you have to tweak it but it's definitely more quick it's faster so yeah i think ai is definitely going to be a massive factor i'm keen to see how it's played in you know program analysis as well it is kind of similar in a way they think about it ai is quite similar to fuzzing my knowledge is limited, but from what I can tell, it's basically the same thing, fuzzing into a reward. And then based off the reward, you kind of change your approach until it's perfect, almost efficient slash optimal. So I don't know, I think it's a great pathway to get into if you're in the dynamic analysis routes, both kind of heuristic based, right? That's a path I want to take. And I think it's quite interesting, especially if you're an automation maxi like myself, even though it requires a whole lot of prerequisite learning like math a bit of probability calculus in the long term grand scheme of things it's it's probably worth especially in this day and age when you know chat gpt is basically revolutionizing the world quite clearly yeah i don't know too much about the theory like underpinning artificial intelligence it's with program analysis right you have these things like they talk about soundness do you find all of the bugs that exist or something whatever you design some sort of technique or analysis you can ascribe properties to it and with ai right there's this area of research called explainability and like other things like that where it's basically like um we we don't know like exactly why the program is arriving at the output that it has and we don't know that at a future date when we ask it the same thing would it also determine the same thing i guess it's just like a trade-off of would you rather use a technique where you have strong theoretical and even mathematical understanding of what guarantees you have based off of the technique you're using or would you rather use something that is a probabilistic system where you're relying on details like training and the internal weights which you don't really have any like way to understand or introspect it might be useful but i think there's a different level of trust like i would trust a program verifier that's uses abstract interpretation and so it could be like software bugs that it's incorrect or something but you still can reason about that versus something that behaves more like a black box where you're asking artificial intelligence is my program correct yeah yeah i think it still comes down to in my case whenever i talk about the stuff i'm thinking about you know, can I extract money from this? Can I brick the system? Can I gain access or manipulate a storage slot in any way that I choose or within some bounds? I think AI can definitely do that. Anything that goes into the realm of understanding business logic, what it's intended to do and finding criticals from that, I think that's the limit 
or at least what's incredibly difficult. If someone can achieve that, they've got like a billion dollar business in my eyes. When you put it that way, do you think when you ask yourself, how will AI help black hats or hackers or something? Will they be more effective and able to cause more damage? The answer is probably yes, at least at some time scale. Like, I don't know if that's five, 10 years, maybe it's next month. When you're talking about defending, it's a much harder task to not have one bug versus to find one and exploit it. So there's kind of that, which maybe that means you have to update your assumption about the capabilities of who you're up against. But at least with like smart contracts and stuff, I think it's been pretty ingrained into most people that they're dealing with potentially a nation state or at least people who are willing to spend months and have very talented hackers working to exploit the systems because it's different than like corporate espionage or whatever else like we're doing ransomware or stuff like that where sometimes there's like an indirect value where it's like you know maybe we found some information on our competitor and there's sort of an intangible and then there's ransomware where you get some sort of bounty and there's like DeFi, and you get potentially millions and sometimes like tens hundreds of millions of dollars just instantly in your wallet the motive to attack or like what you're getting out of it is very clear and obvious Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i think auditing should always be looked at a black hat perspective because that's ultimately what you're going up against in the DeFi world at least I don't have any experience in Web2, but if I were to build a protocol, I would want to prevent money being stolen, money being bricked, you know, just money, anything money related. Yeah. Um, I, and- I guess it's like, yeah, like I definitely think auditors or researchers should have that mindset. But when you're actually like working with their teams, like, you know, coming away with um, like a lot of critical findings is not necessarily reassuring. And then you have projects where they're extremely... If you're going to review any old like T protocol and someone paid you like 10K to review it and they don't have any experience like writing solidity, like you might be able to boast about it on Twitter and say like, I found 12 critical issues, but that's a huge difference than working with someone, you know, they're on version four of their protocol and they're like a billion dollar company and their developers are extremely regimented about building a product that's not going to break and like trying to go the extra mile and like offer some level of at that point, like maybe you didn't find a bug, but you wrote a fuzz test that, you know, now you have higher assurance about that code than you previously did. But, you know, there wasn't like a material finding you just have. So, so I think there's kind of two sides of the coin where it's like, you should definitely treat, find as many, like steal, steal all the funds and tell people about the bugs or you should not steal the funds. I mean, steal the, you should tell them that, tell your clients or people like, you know, responsibly disclose vulnerabilities about loss of funds, right? There's also a very needed component because it's like, there are also people who are like writing code and they need help, not just finding bugs in their code, but like, how are they going to write code tomorrow a little bit better? It's an imperfect process. And it's like, you know, um, you're never going to reach, I don't think you're, you know, gonna become a developer who just can't write bugs but there definitely is like a way to develop software where you're less likely to have something really bad happen than otherwise if you weren't to implement any of the sort of like things that people advocate for like testing and stuff yeah i think for a larger code base that's gone over multiple iterations it's definitely a different kind of scope than someone that's on their first iteration startup 
because obviously they've gone through all the audits before, all the battle testing, especially with a giant system, you know, a big team, reputable developers, you know, engineers that's, that's, that have built a reputation for, you know, providing this very strong foundation of software. Like maybe it's a primitive, right? Finding something in that would be, I think, much more complex as well, because if they're a primitive, they're interacting with multiple protocols, multiple protocols depend on them as well. For example, like Curve, right? A critical in their thing is having, you have the option to choose Weef or Efer itself. And then if you choose Efer, you can, you know, produce a re-entrancy, whether it's read-only or, you know, an actual one. And then from there, you can generate exploits. But I don't know if that's really like a bug in itself, but more of a feature, but it has consequences. It's quite interesting, the different kind of areas. And from the people like I've talked to, the auditors, at least the most elite ones, they always look for the functions that handle the money and go from there. I, I guess there's two different kind of auditing perspectives as well. It's post-deployment and pre-deployment. Obviously, post-deployment, you're just looking to steal money. But pre-deployment, you're just looking to kind of find the business logic bugs. You're not really thinking of game theory stuff, whereas post-deployment is all game theory from what I've experienced. Yeah. And then when you get outside of uh, smart contracts and you're looking at the, you know, we have all these roll-up solutions like optimistic and zero knowledge popping up. And there's a lot that goes into, and to add to that, you have the layer one nodes themselves. And sometimes, you know, in the case of Ethereum, I don't even know how many, like six, seven, eight, something like that. And probably more if you include, they're all expected to be like the execution and consensus compatible. So you now have all these like combinations of clients where you have to be absolutely sure that they're going to work correctly. And so there start to be like different kind of bugs that are like equally devastating, but it's not as clear or easy to find as some way to steal tokens from a smart contract because it might require understanding a like a system with a lot more code and a, a lot more complexity and you have a peer-to-peer -peer network you have a virtual machine you have some sort of proof system and a way to verify those proofs and it just becomes this endless web and, and it's very much becomes web 2 security where you sometimes like something that is benign you can send an input and it crashes a node or something where it's like if you submit that on to some company like oh i can crash your server they'll fix it and roll out the fix and you know they'll be done the next day but like if you can crash a blockchain node and you can crash a large portion of them or all of them like you there's probably ways to make money from that and those things are sometimes not as uh I guess like obvious or I think people have become a little bit myopic about we see all these really big hacks about tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of DeFi protocols but there's going to be a lot less of them that are actually or in terms of like the amount of code and the amount of if the things below them are not more secure than they themselves are like you're in a world of hurt there's so many attack vectors is like wallet hacks phishing you got web 2 attacks in it as well so it's like combining two different worlds. And it's a lot that goes into it, especially once, you know, these v layer 2s and ZK VMs come online. And then you have like the bridges as well. It's, it becomes a massive network. And especially as, you know, blockchain evolves, adds more, you know, I guess, opcodes and like infrastructure changes, all that kind of stuff. It's going to become quite interesting. And I think 
like security is become going to become even more important. So it's definitely a great time to hop on board any kind of opportunity you find because you're really in the grand scheme of things quite early. I think now we're starting to ramp up on innovation, at least from my perspective, for people really working on some really cool things. And it's kind of everybody competing with each other, which I think is fair in like every single stage of development. Like you could be like super early and still feel that way. Like we, we haven't even hit solidity like version one yet. So if you really think about it, really quite early. And like ZK VMs only just recently became like a hot topic. That's going to be a whole new a whole new era, which I'm very excited to see. But yeah, it's been quite a good chat, in my opinion. And it's great to always talk about program analysis. I hope the audience learned a fair bit. And I hope the chat was, you know, pleasurable for you as well, for our first chat as well. So yeah, I've enjoyed it. We'll have to cover more than just program analysis next time then. It was good talking to you, Dagachi. Yeah, likewise. Like, Thank you so much for coming on out for us. Appreciate your time. And I'm excited to see how your career flourishes. It's only been a couple of years so far, three years, right? Can't just see how it all plays out long term. But for the audience, if you want someone to come on the podcast, please DM me on Twitter at scrapingbits or email me at scrapingbits at gmail.com and I'll review whatever you send. Otherwise, thanks for listening and hopefully catch you in another one.